0: Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio network worldwide online, and the podcast is service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com. They are the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or you're a presenter, you may be wondering, how am I going to make this happen? With so many presentations, so many conferences shut down due to the pandemic, we'll log on to SpeakerMatch.com for the latest information on how Uh, meeting planners and speakers can get together in their virtual marketplace. That's SpeakerMatch.com. Well, the world certainly has been in something of an upheaval for the last three months. We have over 100,000 Americans dead due to coronavirus, over 40 million unemployed, and in the last several days, protests have spread not only nationwide but across the world after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, Please welcome author and longtime journalist Tony Hilton to the Big Time Talker podcast. Tony, how are you doing today?
1: Doing very well, Bert, and I appreciate so much you having me.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. Let's let's rewind before we get into what's happening in the world today to your background in journalism, and and you have something of a specialty in journalism. It's almost uh, harkens back to a, a bygone era. You were a, a small-town newspaper guy. Is, is that how you got into it?
1: Well, I was born into it. My, uh, folks both worked for a newspaper in Logan, West Virginia. And when I was a month old, my mom took me down to the newspaper, an old fella in the back shop, brought out some ink, rolled ink on my foot, put it on newsprint and that's how it started.
0: Wow. So you go way back with it. When, when did <laughs> you realize that you had an aptitude for writing like your parents?
1: Um, uh, Probably after I came uh, came to West Virginia University, I majored in business uh, my first semester, of my freshman year, and I decided that uh, that wasn't for me, and I went into journalism at that time. Didn't even tell them that I switched majors.
0: Can you walk me through some of the, the newspapers that you served at in your journalism career?
1: Well, first of all, of course, uh, was the uh, – the Daily Athenaeum, which was a college newspaper at West Virginia University, and then uh, wrote for the Logan Banner when I was in, uh, in the service. Uh, did a little public relations for the West Virginia Commission on Aging uh, and was a public information officer uh, when I served in the Army both in California and Vietnam. So, uh, and if I want to go back, I worked for the Logan junior high school echo student newspaper so i've sort of knocked around uh, at various levels in my
0: career at one point you became a publisher of a newspaper the guy who was actually in charge of the whole shebang right
1: right uh in the early 70s my parents and i bought the hinton daily news and i served as uh Publisher, editor, swept the floors, cleaned the windows, just about anything that needed done, as well as covering local government bodies, uh, Board of Education, City Council, and County Commission. And that's what gave me some of the experience that I was able to work uh, work in my novel about the newspaper business.
0: That's right, and Tony Hilton is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. His novel is called Enough, and it deals with uh, small-town journalism and uh, when a journalist goes afoul of the local bigwigs, and it's available online at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, from Headline Books Publishing. Um, Tony, as a guy who, as you said, have knocked around a lot of newspapers for a long time, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that you sell yourself short a little bit. I mean, you're an award-winning journalist, and you also spent some time, as you mentioned, as a public information officer in in Vietnam and, and during your military service and then spent quite a few years uh, doing communications in Washington, D.C. I wonder, as you look at, at the state of journalism today and you see this phenomenon of news deserts where many of those small-town newspapers and even some medium-city the size newspapers and larger newspapers have just gone away. Um, I'm sure there's a nostalgic pull there for you, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's a real problem that these news deserts exist. Well, it is. And there was an article in the New York
1: times uh, just last December that talked about this. And I think one thing that summed it up was it says our community doesn't know itself, and that's the way that uh, the writer, of this particular article, summed up what happens when the community newspaper leaves. The community just doesn't know itself.
0: Tony Hilton is our guest today. is a veteran journalist uh, with many years of experience, uh, going all the way back to the Vietnam era. Um and so the definition of a news desert is an area that is not served at all or is woefully underserved by by a local news source and uh you know as as a young man I know that there were newspaper reporters and and radio station news directors who would cover the local city council meeting uh the local county commission meeting the board of education meetings and and in many cases they would uncover some shenanigans that were happening there uh, what happens when when those checks and balances go away from journalism? Well, I think uh, the
1: founding fathers put freedom of the press in the First Amendment so that the press could hold public officials accountable. And when that coverage goes away, whether it's a big city newspaper or a small community, there's no one to hold public officials accountable and uh, it is just, uh, it's a terrible situation. And uh, I guess uh, there was an article in The Atlantic uh, oh, uh, some time ago that summed it up this way. It said that it's one thing to send out something and a tweet on, uh, on a public body or post something on Facebook. But that's not the kind of journalism that local paper, papers did. Uh, it's one thing to send a tweet, but to have a reporter that regularly covers City Hall, the Board of Education, that gives you a different type of in-depth coverage. And when you take uh, a local newspaper away, you literally rip the heart out of the community.
0: Is it a question of the delivery method? I mean, are we being a little too stuck in the ways of the past, where we expect that that print newspaper to arrive with a thud when the paper boy throws it on the front porch? Uh, could all of this uh, journalism happen online? Or Tony, is it really a, a question of economics? Because there's no question that if if these small town newspapers were flush with money and they were you know selling advertising hand over fist, they would be in much mm-hmm. better shape. So. I, I know it's a big question, but what's the answer here? Can we take it online? Is there a, a profitable business model for a small-town newspaper uh, on the Internet? Is it something of a, a public-private partnership? Is it, uh, Or is there another financial model that would make local journalism uh, economically feasible again?
1: Well, uh, West Virginia University has started a program. In fact, it's been going on for the last couple of years. They've gotten funding from the Benidim Foundation and also from the John Knight Foundation, which uh, came out of the uh, uh, Knight-Ritter newspaper chain. And they're trying to take newspapers that are about to fail and find buyers and have a course of study, a fellowship program, at uh, the P.I. Reed School of uh, College of Media at West Virginia University, and it's a nationwide-type program. They're trying to address that part of it. But I think uh, some people want to receive information online, and I think uh, that has to be looked at uh, very carefully and find a business model that will bring in the revenue Uh, not only through subscriptions, but allow effective advertising. So I'm not sure there uh, is one solution to the problem of providing local news coverage, but the bottom line is you got to have it.
0: Tony Hilton, our guest today, he's the author of the book Enough, which is a uh, a harrowing fictional account of a small-town newspaper man that runs afoul of the local politicians and what happens when they burn that newspaper to the ground. Uh, and we're talking about journalism in today's world. And and certainly uh, the news industry has been um, a major focus of this White House and of President Trump and and the rise of, of the phenomena of fake news. And I wanted to get into that with you a little bit. Uh, as a newsman, does that make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Or, conversely, Is there some truth to the notion of fake news? Well, fake news has gotten all
1: sorts of definition, uh, definitions. One of them recently, as it's become to mean news with which we disagree, even though the story might be, uh, might be accurate, uh, completely, but the term, Uh, Fake news, I think the news media holds the key to banishing the term fake news because every now and then, not too often, but every now and then, a reporter will go with a story where the facts have not been checked out and where uh, the due diligence hasn't been done before the story runs. So you have a story that turns out to not be completely true. That puts a stain not only on the reporter, but the entire news business. So it's those type of reporters that has helped the term fake news take root.
0: What about this, this phenomenon that feels recent, but certainly it can't be as recent as, as it feels of of the biases the biases in the media the the left wing outlets the democratic outlets as as the president calls them uh very derisively as a matter of fact mainstream media that that has this negative connotation where it certainly wouldn't have before uh you know versus conservative news outlets It sure doesn't seem like that long ago when Walter Cronkite and Tom Brokaw, Mike Wallace and folks like that that you would see on TV played it straight down the middle. Is there a place for centrist journalism in today's world, or is is that a bygone era in your opinion?
1: Well, if we don't get back to it, uh, the press will not be able to fulfill its First Amendment responsibility of holding public officials accountable regardless of their uh, Republican or Democrat. I think what has to happen is the bias. There's a place for bias in journalism, and that's an editorial page or in commentary, and it has to be identified like that. So I just hope that the principles of journalism, uh, when I taught journalism, I taught my students to be fair and accurate and get their biases out of it. And that has to happen. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist, so I think it will, but uh, we're not there
0: yet. There are some people that would say, and I've heard it said, that you you can't be unbiased when you're a journalist. You can't help but... But let your your true feelings come through. Now, certainly, to your point, there are these opinion shows that you see on on cable news, for example, at MSNBC or Rachel Maddow on on Fox or Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity. Those clearly are opinion based shows. Those are not quote unquote news programs. But but is it possible, really, Tony, as a guy who was a journalist for decades, for you to take your bias out?
1: Well, we all have our feelings, and we all have our opinions uh and to think that we don't have them is not being realistic the key is to be disciplined enough not to let those creep into your news stories and you got to have good editors to to make sure they edit that out and you got to have reporters that are dedicated enough uh to keep it out. It will. I mean, humans being humans, you're going to have that occasionally, but it takes an effort and a uh, a dedicated effort to keep it out.
0: Do you think it's a good thing, Tony, that, uh, that news networks like CNN and Fox news also have opinion shows there? I, I wonder sometimes whether there's an awful lot of viewers that, don't discern between the opinion hosts and the newscasters; that they're all sort of thrown in to the same blender. I, I wonder if if there should be some point of differentiation uh, between those. Whether it's to put the opinion host on a whole other channel and have the the news networks be all news. Whether you run disclaimers. You know, back in the old days, whenever uh, a, a TV newscast—and and gosh, it doesn't seem like that long ago—but when a TV newscast would run an opinion piece. There would be, you know, a big announcement right beforehand. Here's the the general manager of the the TV station with this opinion piece. What's the right answer there when it comes to uh, video journalism? Certainly, but journalism across the board.
1: Well, I think you hit on the key, and that's to identify. In a newspaper, it's easy to tell where the editorial page. They look different. They generally have uh, their own headline. Uh, on television and radio, you've got to take great pains on identifying it, and you also have to have the moderators that take the time to identify it. And uh, I think that it's got to be a discipline to do that and to educate the public in the difference. And it is, uh, it is a challenge but I think uh, a challenge that has to be met.
0: Veteran journalist Tony Hilton is our guest today. His new book is Enough, and if you're a news junkie, if you're a fan of current events, you're going to love this book. It's from Headline Books, Independent Publisher of the Year, and also available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. I wonder, if, if Tony, if you could armchair quarterback uh, some things for me that, that we all see now, and one of them is – these uh, these press conferences that have happened, um, uh, you know, for the last gosh uh, two decades, the presses seem to develop an awfully adversarial relationship with elected officials, and you see it a lot with with this White House, but certainly seen it with previous White Houses as well. Uh, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? You talk about how important it is to to hold these elected officials accountable. But man, sometimes it just seems downright hostile. So as somebody that, that, as you mentioned, taught uh, uh, taught journalism at the university level, when you see this happening, where would you recommend that your young journalists, that you educate, where do they draw the line there?
1: Well, I think in being adversarial and being hostile are two different things. Okay. Adversarial is built into the system. A good reporter reports the news, and public officials, being they Democrat or Republican, are going to screw up. (laughs) And the reporters, if they're doing their job, are going to report it. So when you ask a public official, Democrat or Republican, what do you think of the news media Nine chances out of 10, they're going to say the news media are out to get me, don't know what they're talking about, uh, that kind of thing. And when you hear that about the press from Democrats and Republicans, that means the press is doing a good job. The hostility that we see now goes back to your point of reporters letting their biases creep into their news reporting and their questioning. Now, we'll make an observation, uh, Burke, and you might remember this. You're probably starting out your career then. In 1796, <laughs> according to uh, Mount Vernon, one reason George Washington didn't run for re-election was because of the bad press he was getting. Is that right? So the press has been a, a, pain, a thorn in the side of presidents from day one.
0: Is it more so the case today with this White House? Because you know the it certainly seems to be a really hostile back and forth that comes from uh, the president to the White House press corps.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good point, and one reason might have been is that during the 2016 election that the press became invested with, uh, the, uh, losing candidate.
0: And so as you look at this as a veteran journalist, if you would have had some of these, uh, these white house reporters, for example, in your class, what's the advice on telling them how to dial it back and yet get information from, Uh, you know, a press secretary or a president who doesn't want to give it up? How do you dig it out from them? Well,
1: first of all, I would tell my reporters, and this is what I taught, don't become part of the story. Ask your questions and take the answers. Don't get in a debate. Uh, It's okay to have follow-up questions, and generally you go into a press conference and you know what you want to ask. The White House media at times does uh, something good. They plan with some of the other reporters to have follow-up questions. So if, if they don't get to ask their question or don't like the answer or needs expansion, they do that. And then public officials must appreciate the role of the press. And to fully understand it, you have to go back to when the First Amendment was put in the Constitution. You had our founding fathers, all of them politicians, that had been vilified by the colonial press. Yet they decided that public officials had to be held accountable by an independent, non-government institution. And that was the press. So public officials also have to understand the history of how freedom of the press and why freedom of the press became part of the First Amendment.
0: Our guest is Tony Hilton. His book is Enough. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about it, you can find it at headlinebooks.com, amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, wherever great books are sold it's or, a fascinating. Or, or
1: you can go, you can go to tonyhilton.com and find it too.
0: Now if, if they go to tonyhilton.com will you actually personalize it and if so can people I, read your signature? That's the question. Oh,
1: yeah, that, that that is the point but yes, I'd be more than happy uh, to send them along a personalized autograph copy
0: very good and we should point out that uh, tony hilton it's hilton with a y not like the hotel h y l t o n tony hilton yeah, that's the, .com that's the poor branch of the hilton family <laughs> the the low rent hiltons right. um, so uh, as uh, you know i watch news coverage and as i read news coverage and as somebody who's been in and around the media for a long time uh, as have you i am somewhat encouraged by the fact that now every citizen pretty much over the age of six or seven has a journalistic device in their hand or in their pocket at all times. And, and that is the cell phone. And I think that the use of the the camera on the cell phone is bringing some things to light that, that maybe were swept under the rug and off into dark corners for an awful long time by public officials and, and others. And I think that, you know, these protests uh, after the, the awful killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis is a good example of that because that video very quickly, in less than a day, made its way all around the country yeah, in social absolutely. media and and sort of led to uh, to this national upheaval, which now has become upheaval around the world. Now, again, you're an old school journalism guy. There was a day when when newspapers and TV stations and radio stations were the the gatekeepers of public information to a certain extent. Now that's all gone. That gatekeeping is gone. From my vantage point, that's a good thing. I wonder, as a newspaper guy, what you think. Is that a good thing, that now everyone has the ability to take these photos, to take these videos, and share them immediately?
1: I think the unsung hero in the George Floyd matter is the person that took that video. I think that I would even nominate him for a Pulitzer Prize in spot news photography. Uh, It was, and I watched it a couple times, and I just hope that that video gets this state, uh, gets the nation down the road to confronting uh, the dark shadows of racism and maybe, uh, move us forward. I just think that that was, uh, uh, that think what it would be Burke if we hadn't had that video.
0: Right. It's, uh, it was chilling. It was hard for me to get through that video and I think it was for an awful lot of other Americans. And, and, uh, I, I wonder as, as a guy who, went through the protests of the 1960s. I mean, you were around for all that. You, you served in Vietnam. If, if this harkens back for you mentally to those days in, in the late 60s where there were protests and riots uh, all over America, and, and if, if we've made any progress in the last 50 years, because it sure does seem an awful lot now like it was in 1968 in this country.
1: Well, in 1968, I was in the Army. I do remember when I got out of the army in California, we were told not to wear our uniforms as we flew home across the country because of the protest. I think that the protest back then and what we're seeing in the riots are two different uh, Kittle of fish. The uh, the protest back then, although I didn't agree with it at all, did have a public policy basis. Protesting George Floyd's death peacefully and marching certainly uh, is justified. The Antiva and some of the things I've been reading about the violence being planned, uh, is, is in a different uh, area, at, uh, at least to me. I think the way that these protests have, uh, or riots have sprung up in so many places, it almost looks like there was a plan for the riots and they were just waiting on something to trigger it. So uh, we'll have to see. It's just, it is a troubling time for for the country certainly and it's, covering it is a challenge for the news media
0: let me ask you about that the the riots i think you know to a man and woman that that is asked about it uh they find that very troubling very challenging it, you know if you're a business owner if you live in that neighborhood and things are getting destroyed it's it's a bad problem but you're a journalist you're a realistic journalist you're a smart guy would the media have paid nearly as much attention to peaceful protesters uh, marching through the streets and, and singing Kumbaya and locking arms together as they would these very vivid images of, of looting and burning? Would it have gotten the attention that, that it might need to actually affect social change after George Floyd? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm curious to your take on it as a journalist. Do you think that uh, you know newspapers, TV stations would have paid attention to it?
1: Well, there's no saying, if it bleeds, it leads. But I think that with the George Floyd video, uh, the peaceful protest would have gotten more coverage than maybe peaceful protest uh, in an earlier time. I believe that the people committing the violence are hurting uh, the people that want to solve the racial division we have because people that are resisting trying to uh, solve or certainly move upon the racial problems we have are being hurt because people can point to the fires and point to the looting.
0: Tony Hilton is our guest today, and before we wrap up, I I do want to ask you, Tony, about this phenomenon that we've seen an awful lot in the last week or so, Uh, and and you touched on it earlier, of journalists becoming part of the story. Several journalists have very unwittingly become part of the story because they have uh, have taken it on the chin during uh, the coverage of these protests. Uh, uh, The young African-American reporter from CNN uh, who was arrested on camera in the middle of doing a live report. Uh, there was a, a young reporter in Louisville, Kentucky. I saw a video of who was doing a live reporting. You saw the police turn their guns on her and start to shoot her with rubber bullets, her and her camera crew. And of course, there was the the Fox News crew that uh, was was harassed by the rioters and the protesters. And had to run and take shelter. There's been an awful lot of that violence against journalists. And, look, we're not covering, uh, you know, a war of a banana republic somewhere in Central America. This is uh, the United States of America. A- at what point do we say enough is enough? And, you know, is it is it uh, too dangerous for journalists to be out there? What What's your vantage point looking at that from far away as far as, as these journalists finding themselves in harm's way and becoming part of the story unwittingly?
1: Well, when you go out and cover a riot, you know what you're getting into And I haven't seen the film of the instances uh, that you mentioned, but police are under pressure. Uh, The rioters are looking for anything to give themselves more publicity. And I just think if you're going to be a journalist and you're going to cover those types of things, uh, you've you've got to be prepared to be an uncomfortable situation. I think Khashoggi, uh, the reporter from uh, Saudi Arabia that was uh, uh, that was murdered uh, probably with the complacency of the Saudi government. I think we have those incidents. Uh, all the time, and all I can say is thank the good Lord we have journalists that will go in and get the story, uh, despite those types of uh, of threatening situations, and that could be a segue into the the young publisher in enough what he went up against and the fact that uh, there was a plot to murder him. So journalism. Uh, on all levels, can be a dangerous uh, profession in which to be involved.
0: You know, I I am heartened by occasional young, um, detail-oriented, assertive journalists that I deal with around the country. There's a young lady that's the new features editor at the Bluefield Daily Telegraph, which is in a, a town of about 20,000 people that straddles the Virginia, West Virginia state line for our listeners who aren't familiar with it. And and she's a phenomenal writer, young lady, probably in her mid twenties who's chosen that as a profession. Your book enough is about a young journalist and you've taught many young journalists there at the university. Is this a, a career path that you would advise someone to stay away from? Or if if they want to get into journalism now, Do you tell them full speed ahead? Is there a future for local journalists?
1: I would hope so. If there's not, our country's in a hell of a shape, but, uh, I think young people today, uh, tend to, to really want to be good. Uh, you don't go into journalism to get rich. Uh, you go into it as a, as a form, almost a public service, but it isn't. Uh, I would, Talk with someone and counsel them if you want to feel good about your job and good about what you do, journalism's a good profession.
0: Hey, before we wrap up, Tony, tell us a little bit more about about enough about the inspiration behind your book and and give us the the elevator pitch the story behind the book. I think it's a fascinating read.
1: Well, we have an underdog small town newspaper publisher that takes on a corrupt political machine. And as a result of being scared of losing their political power, these two kingpins set in motion a conspiracy that burns his paper to the ground. And you see, uh, as we talked before in this interview, the important role an effective newspaper can play in a community. And that's what uh, Enough's about. It looks at small town uh, politics in a fictional southern West Virginia county in 1960. And uh, it talks about the characters you find in small towns and it goes into all the twists and turns uh, of a newspaper
0: in a small town. The book is enough. The author is veteran journalist Tony Hilton. You can find it at TonyHilton.com. That's Hilton with a Y, TonyHilton.com, as well as uh, everywhere great books are sold from Headline Books. Great conversation about journalism, where we came from, and where we are today. Tony, thanks for spending time with us.
1: Burke, I can't thank you enough for having me. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thanks again to our guest, Tony Hilton. This is the Big Time Talker Podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy. Bye, everybody.